Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Right now, we are in the middle of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. I grew up in New Hampshire, where it feels like half the kids in your high school are trying out or training for the Winter Olympics at any given time. Uh, Shout out to gold medalist Hannah Kearney, who is a few years ahead of me. So the colder, icier half of the Olympics has always had a really special place in my heart. But the Olympics have always been about more than sports. They're a major meeting of national governments, and they've historically been a place where geopolitical tensions play out, where countries try to improve their reputations and diminish those of their rivals. Victor Cha holds the D.S. Song Korea Foundation Chair in Asian Studies at Georgetown, and he formerly served as Director for Asian Affairs at the White House National Security Council. He also literally wrote the book on the politics of the Olympics. It's called Beyond the Final Score, The Politics of Sport in Asia. It took a look at what the 2008 Beijing Games meant for China and how they've compared to other games like the 1988 Olympics in Seoul or the 1964 Games in Tokyo. It's been 14 years since the last Beijing Games and China's role as an Olympic host remains as fraught and controversial as ever. So we asked Victor to walk us through the political implications of the 2022 Games and the politics of the Olympics more generally. Victor, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So walk me through sort of the the political backdrop for the 2022 Games. What's sort of China's big goal in hosting these Olympics and and in sort of their whole promotion strategy? Um, So this is the second time that China's hosted the Olympics. They hosted the 2008 Beijing uh, Summer Olympics and now the 2022 Winter Olympics. This is the fourth time that the Winter Olympics has been held in Asia twice before in Japan, and then in 2018 in South Korea, in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Um, <clears throat> I would say that the context in which China's hosting these games are different in a couple of respects. First, unlike 2018 Pyeongchang, South Korea was a liberal democracy hosting the Olympics, which embodies liberal ideals of sport and fair play and rules and transparency. Uh, But China really follows along the lines of Russia in the sense that it's an illiberal regime hosting the Olympics, Sochi in 2014, the Sochi Winter Olympics, and now uh, Beijing in 2022. And so the first thing is that once you have an illiberal regime hosting the Olympics, you know, the event every four years where the entire world comes together, that's already going to be political. So for the IOC to say there's no politics in the Olympics is, is just, I mean, it's wishful thinking. It's just not, it's impossible. The second thing I would say is that, um, you know, China and hosting the games in 2022, I think these games really are a statement of China's confidence in the success of their illiberal model 
of state governance. In 2008, I think it was very much of a coming out party, China trying to show the world how much they have accomplished in three decades of modernization. But this Olympics is not so much about a coming out party. It really is an assertion under Xi Jinping of what China believes is a successful and superior model of how a state governs its people, or transacts its economy, and the evidence of that is, you know, is the success which they pull off the games. I don't necessarily agree with that view, but I think that that is the context in which they, these games take place this time. You mentioned the 2008 games and you, you wrote a, a book uh, in part about the, the Beijing games in 2008 and what a major milestone that was for China. How different are its goals now from they were uh, 14 years ago? So in 2008, I think, you know, their audience was both domestic and international in the sense that they were domestically trying to show uh, the success of the Communist Party and hosting these the Olympics for the first time in China's history. And internationally, as I said, it was a sort of coming out party, demonstrating to the world all this high-tech you know, architecture and the thousands of years of civilization in China. China is no longer the sick man of Asia. Uh, I think these were sort of the messages. In 2022, I, there's a domestic message, which, again, continues to be the legitimacy of the Communist Party. But I, I feel like the public message is more outwardly defiant. In 2008, it was sort of accept us as a great power. And in 2022, it's much more defiant in terms of not shying away from human rights criticisms or these other sorts of things, but actually taking them head on in a very ham-fisted way, whether it's dealing with the missing tennis player who claimed a Chinese senior party official had raped her or uh, the way they used a Uyghur athlete to light the torch in the opening ceremonies. These are really, in many ways, a slap in the face of the international community um, saying, you know, we do things our own way, whether you like it or not. I wanted to talk a bit about the the situation with that tennis athlete you mentioned, uh, Peng Shui. So that's been a huge sort of background issue throughout these games. Walk me through what happened there and sort of what the implications have been for, for China's sort of approach to hosting. So Peng Shui was a really top flight a world champion doubles tennis player in the Women's Tennis Association, three-time Olympian. And um, she posted on social media that she had a relationship with a senior Communist Party official, but also that 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 Communist Party official had sexually attacked her. And this, you know, was a huge revelation. Uh, it was posted on social media. The Chinese government immediately took it down and she disappeared from view, completely disappeared from view. The IOC's response was essentially to say that there's nothing really here to see. Uh, we don't let politics get in the way of sports. They staged a, a video call between the missing tennis player and the head of the IOC, which looked extremely staged. We still don't know if Peng Shui was speaking freely or if she's being coerced into walking back these statements to make the scandal go away. Remember and uh, the IOC really has tried to sweep the issue under the rug because they don't want it to be a problem for their Olympics. The Women's Tennis Association, on the other hand, went in completely the opposite direction. They demanded information on where she was and access to her so she they could hear her story. 
and know that she was safe. And then when the Chinese government was not forthcoming, the Women's Tennis Association actually canceled all of their tournaments in China uh, over the winter. Usually the way the, the season works is the U.S. Open in New York is the last big Grand Slam tournament of the year. And then there's the Asia Swing where they go and play in, in uh, different parts of Asia, including several places in, in China, including Hong Kong before the start of the new season, which is the Australian Open, which just finished. And the WTA basically said, we, we're not going to accept this. And they've canceled all these tournaments that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So the IOC has kind of been in bed with China in terms of trying to play down any, any of these political issues, these human rights issues, reflected in, the, in a case like Peng Shui. And the argument that the IOC uses is that they don't want to allow politics to get in the way of sport. Well, this is not politics. This is human rights violations, human rights abuses, and sexual assault. But that nevertheless has been the IOC uh, reaction. This is probably just naive of me, but it, it seems like in addition to being morally reprehensible, disappearing Peng Shui and, and trying to sort of very clumsily and publicly shush the issue, as opposed to just sort of prosecuting the senior official, seems really bad from a diplomatic standpoint for China. How do they see it? And what what is sort of the rationale in the Politburo for why this is sort of a reasonable course of action, despite the enormous backlash from, say, the Women's Tennis Association? Well, I, I think this is the thing that's interesting, which is that, you know, if this had happened in maybe in 2008, there might have been a, a different reaction or at least a more forward-leaning response. But I think that's how, how much China's changed between 2008 and 2022, their sense of confidence, self-assertion, self-righteousness. So they don't really feel like they need to answer, you know, the public criticisms or concerns about this case. And instead, they just will go ahead and do things the way they want because they feel like everybody needs China anyway. Everybody needs the Chinese market. Everybody needs to do business in China. And so they feel no need to, to seek acceptance from the West about these sorts, of, these sorts of criticisms. And again, to me, the, the most obvious example of this was their selection of the athlete from Xinjiang to light the torch in the opening ceremonies of the winter. I was, I was shocked when I saw that um, because um, it was slap in the face of the Biden administration, you know, which had said the reason that its diplomats uh, was, were boycotting the Olympics was because of human rights violations in Xinjiang. So to put a Xinjiang athlete out there to me was, um, uh, a, a, you know, a real slap in the face of the United States and the, you know, dozen or so other countries that also honored the U.S.-led boycott. So how did that decision come about and sort of what, what have the implications been for U.S.-China relations uh, that, that the Biden administration made that choice? So the decision to carry out a diplomatic boycott, as Jen Psaki, the White House spokesperson, said, was they did not want to contribute to the fanfare of China's Olympics the Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. The athletes on Team USA have our full support. We will be behind them 100% as we cheer them on from home. We will not be contributing to the fanfare of the Games when China was still carrying out these horrible 
human rights abuses, the State Department actually determined that genocide was taking place with regard to the Uyghur Muslim population in Xinjiang, and that the United States decided that it would not it, w- it would not send officials. The athletes could participate, and I think that was the right decision. Let the athletes participate, but the officials um, were not going to be there given uh, the fact that China has not addressed any of these concerns about human rights problems. What it means for U.S.-China relations is I don't think it, I don't think it has an impact on U.S.-China relations as much as I think it's a reflection or a manifestation of how difficult U.S.-China relations have become. Normally, high-level delegations go to the opening ceremonies. Two years ago for the Tokyo Olympics, Dr. Jill Biden went. They would normally sit in the VIP box with the host and do some events with uh, Team USA and go to some sporting competitions and cheer them on. Uh, I think much as they would probably have liked to do that, they didn't want to give uh, Xi Jinping the photo op of the president's envoy, whether it's Dr. Jill Biden or somebody else, sort of sitting there and shaking hands with Xi Jinping at his Olympics when uh, Xi Jinping has done nothing about any international concerns about the human rights situation. The boycott seems to play an important role in terms of articulating not just to the Chinese, but to sort of human rights movements globally, sort of the Biden administration's position on on human rights abuses, its, its sort of lack of willingness to participate in certain events. How much sort of leverage does it exercise over China itself? Are we likely to see any real changes in, in treatment of Uyghurs or is, is the attitude still, you know, you need us, we can do what we want? Um, I don't think it was ever the aspiration that a diplomatic boycott would change China's policies. I, didn't, I don't think anybody ever expected that. You know, it's, it's just, it's the equivalent of saying, like, I just refuse to go to this dinner party because the host is a complete you know, jerk or, you know, uh, you know, an embezzler or whatever it might be. They're not necessarily doing something to you at the moment, but what they've done and what they stand for, you're just not going to give them that stage. And I think that was behind the administration's um, thinking on this. So, you know, it was never expected that it would change policy. It leaves a stain on Beijing's Olympics and it shows them that they just can't get away scot-free. They can't assume that everybody is going to simply kowtow to China and ignore, you know, what they're doing in in parts of their own country. So I wanted to to ask about one athlete in particular during this Olympics, and that's Eileen Gu, who won the gold medal for freestyle skiing for for, uh, big air skiing. So Gu was born and raised in San Francisco. So far as I can tell, has never lived for any length of time in China, but is competing for China, uh, where her mother's from. How much of a sort of coup was that for the Chinese government? And how does that sort of choice to to cross that kind of sporting border affect the games? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I haven't really had given myself enough time to think about this. I mean, on the one hand, it's very much of a razor's edge because, you know, China is now open to having to importing athletes to represent China I don't think that means that they are all of a sudden much more accepting of sort of political openness and foreigners sort of helping to create a new multi-ethnic global Chinese identity. I, I don't think that is sort of what this reflects. Uh, I think it, it, it's the way China deals with new technology. 
they try to bring in the best as quickly as they can, try to learn as much as they can from it, or in some cases with technology, steal the technology, learn or steal as much as they can. And then once they, they do that, they'll, they will toss it aside. In the case of this big air skier, uh, you know, they've now have her winning the gold as a role model domestically to get their youth interested in big air skiing. And, um, you know, they'll use her for as long as they can. And then after that, when she's of no more use, then they'll get rid of her. So, you know, unfortunately, I, you know, that's uh, one way of looking at it. I'm sure like for the athlete, it was her personal choice. And I've seen some of the interviews in social media she gave where she said, you know, she has two identities in the United States. She's American and in China, she's Chinese. From an AAPI perspective, I can certainly understand that too. When you remember in 2018, when Chloe Kim, the Korean American um, snowboarder won the gold medal, there were still people on social media that said, well, she's not really American, right? <laughs> Even though she's born in the United States, raised in the United States. And they said, well, you know, she's not really, she's not really American. I mean, she didn't represent Korea. She represented the United States. And then there are people now who say, Eileen Gu, oh, she's American. She should be re- representing America. If she had done that and won the gold medal, I'm sure there would be some people out there who would say, well, she's not really American, you know, because she's, she, she looks Asian, so there's that. And then the third point I would make is this really is a dual-edged sword because China imports these athletes and they celebrate them if they do well. If they don't succeed, then they toss them aside like garbage. And the Chinese public also uh, is very negative against the ones who don't do well. So in that sense, it's a very draconian treatment of these imported athletes, and it's a risk that these athletes take. We're going to take a quick break, but after we come back, Victor Chow and I are going to talk a bit more about past Olympics and also about sort of the broader aspirations of the Olympics to promote peace and cooperation. So stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So you mentioned the the Sochi Olympics uh, when we were talking earlier. I wanted to to ask again about the comparison to to Russia. So Russia has sort of a a tendency to to show up Chinese games, as you mentioned, the the Georgia invasion in, in 2008 and the ongoing situation in Ukraine now. I'm curious how you saw their hosting experience uh, and how that sort of played into 
their growing antagonism toward the U.S. and the West since they were they were hosts just days or months before some of the big drama of 2014. So I think it's similar in the sense that there was a lot of political protesting in the run-up to the games, lots of concerns about corruption with regard to the building of the Sochi uh, facility, and then the same sorts of self-assertions of the viability of their model that we saw you know, in 2014 that we see in 2022. I mean, a very uncharitable take on this would be that the IOC is complicit in allowing these illiberal regimes to prosper and to demonstrate how well they're doing you know, at a time when we have democratic backsliding around the world. Even in our own country, you know, there's lots of concerns about uh, democratic erosion and January 6th. So in a sense, you know, the IOC is putting these countries on a, in a showcase, a platform where they, you know, they can make as Potemkin village and Olympics as they want, especially during COVID, because they exercise complete control. And, you know, I think that's certainly the case today. It was the case, but to a lesser extent in Russia in 2014, but it was still that the case in 2014. We like to think of the Olympics when they go to these places as creating liberalizing forces because, you know, you're hosting the world, you're under the magnifying glass, people point out human rights abuses or the need for improved climate change practices or environmental practices. And then the host country feels a need to respond to that because they want to host the games well. But what we're getting instead is the IOC awarding these games to these countries and they use it as a platform to completely disregard any of the liberalizing influences and say, thank you, we're just fine the way we are and we can show you how we can put on a really you know, great, great Olympics. So now there's a new chapter in the charter that with regard to sort of meeting, essentially meeting certain political benchmarks we'll see the extent to which that, that is really exercised as a criterion for awarding Olympics, uh, Olympic host sites in the future. So you, you mentioned the sort of dream that Olympic Games can be a liberalizing force. The best kind of argument that I've heard for that is the 1988 Games in Seoul. And in addition to, to knowing a lot about uh, the politics of sport, you're a Korean security and politics expert. What did the 1988 games do? Sort of how did South Korea end up hosting and, and how did it change sort of the domestic politics of the country? The IOC awarded the 1980 Olympics to South Korea in 1981. And in 1981, Korea was still run as a military dictatorship. The government in power had just killed thousands of democracy activists in the southern city of Gwangju in South Korea. So there was a lot of actually outrage that the IOC awarded the games to you know this military regime in South Korea. And the IOC, as they often do, say we don't allow politics to mix with sports, and therefore we're going to stay stay with our decision. But you know there are many other factors that led to democratization. But the Olympics was actually quite important because, to make a long story short, democracy activists they were not deterred by what happened in Gwangju in nineteen eighty. They continued to protest, and eventually the nation was consumed in protests all over the country in 1987, a year before they were about to host the Olympics. And the international media, the IOC, 
we're all concerned, given all of this violent protesting and tear gas and things, whether they would be able to host the Olympics in 1988. And in fact, the um, hand-pointed, appointed successor to the military regime leader in South Korea actually personally played a role in getting the IOC to award the bid to South Korea in 1981. So the Olympics wasn't the only reason, but it was one of the major factors, I think, in the eventual decision by the Chun-Doo-Hwan regime to relent to the protesters and allow for direct presidential elections in 1987. In, in June of 1987, government in power basically agreed to the democracy protesters' demands. And, you know, there, there are many other issues involved in that, the consumer middle class, politically conscious consumer middle class, these other things. But the Olympics was not an insignificant, sorry to use a double negative, but the Olympic was not <laughs> a, an insignificant factor. Personally, because the handpicked successor had internalized the importance of the games. And secondly, because the international community was all looking at South Korea and saying, they're not ready to host the Olympics. And so... You know, I think those were major factors in the decision by the military regime. I mean, they could have imposed martial law to put down the democracy protest in June of 1987. But can you imagine what that would have looked like to the world and to the International Olympic Committee if they had done that? A lot of people would have said, we can't hold the Olympics in 1980 in Korea. And so I think it does have that sort of that's one case where it really did have a liberalizing effect on, on the country. It did generate truly different political outcomes. What was the difference there? I, I struggle to think of other cases where an Olympics was such a contributing factor to, to liberalization. Maybe you know some examples that I don't, but it, fear of public backlash didn't keep the Soviet Union from invading Afghanistan. It has not kept the CCP from running uh, internment camps in Xinjiang. What was different about the Korea case that made sort of the military regime more susceptible to pressure? You know, it's a it's a good question. It would make a night make a great PhD dissertation somewhere, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but you know, I would say um, you know a couple of things. The first is that you know, in this case, South Korea, even though it was a dictatorship, was a U.S. ally, a U.S. treaty ally that had always wanted to see nonviolent resolutions to political disputes and, you know, democracy in Korea. And so I think that that's one thing that's certainly different from, from, the, from the China case. I think the other was that Korea was really following the sort of East Asian development model in the sense that, you know, initially politically closed system with state-led economic development made the country very prosperous, which then caused the consumer middle class to want greater political opening. So the tectonic plates were already shifting when this Olympic crisis came to be. And arguably, you know, the, the moment for China was in 1989 with Tiananmen Square, um, where the outcome was very different. The South Koreans did not let the tanks roll through the streets, literally did not let them roll through the protesters. While in 1989... China did allow the tanks to roll through the streets and crush the democracy protests. And so certainly part of it had to do with decisions or choices that the political leadership made. One kind of odd thing about the Olympics that comes up whenever there's sort of a bidding process is it seems to not be very economically advantageous for the hosts. 
it seems like everyone thinks that they can get it done under budget and, and have it be profitable. And that almost never happens. And it was striking to me looking at who bid this time around that the only other bidder besides Beijing was Almaty Kazakhstan. And I'm not a Central Asia expert by any means, but Kazakhstan does not seem dramatically better on human rights than China. Are we at a point where to want to host, despite some of the costs, you kind of have to be a, a dictatorship with a reputation you want to improve? I certainly hope not. <laughs> I certainly hope that's not the case. You know, often the countries who are going to apply are going to be countries and leaders that, you know, see the Olympics as a way to really legitimize their illiberal rule. See economic, economic benefits, at least in terms of the construction that goes on to create facilities that are good, good for the Olympics. The after effects of that are another question, but certainly lots of opportunity to make money from the building of the facilities and they see propaganda value, which is why it's so important for the IOC to really stand firm, to not prioritize having a nice Olympics, you know, over dealing with some of the imperfections or having the host country at least address some of the imperfections that are pointed out once they are known to become the Olympic hosts. And so, you know, I, I really do wish the IOC and Olympic corporate sponsors were much more proactive in this regard. Those are the two groups that tend to be the least proactive when it comes to dealing with the politics of the Olympics. Um, you know, in the case of corporate sponsors, for obvious economic reasons, obvious but not necessarily justifiable uh, economic reasons. And then for the IOC, in terms of them wanting to have the games that they feel is free of, of politics. But as you know, as you know, the the notion that you don't want to talk about human rights because you don't want politics to interfere with the sports is in and of itself a political statement. It's sort of like when the IOC decided in 1936 that they were not going to take the Olympics away from Berlin because they didn't want politics to be involved in sports. That is, you know, about the most political statement that the IOC can make. So then my point here is the notion that these things can be easily separated um, is just, it's just not, it's a specious statement. You can't, you can't separate the two. So, yeah, it, I mean, the, the Olympics seem constantly and, and clearly political. I mean, the, the first Olympics I remember learning about as a kid was Jesse Owens as a black man winning the gold medal in Nazi Germany. It, it hardly gets more political than that. But there's also been this sort of broader hope for the Olympics that they can be a sort of force for peace and cooperation and reconciliation. And we talked about sort of a potential liberalizing effect in, in South Korea. This is a very broad question, but but how how well do you think the Olympics as an institution has upheld the broader goal of of trying to promote sort of peace and cooperation in even a small way between the nations that are participating? I think they would claim that they have, but I would rebut that if the if the bar for success is bringing people and countries together for 12 days or 14 days, whatever it is, so that they can compete and not talk about their political problems. Yes, I mean, the Olympics can do that, right? But the extent to which the Olympics can actually cause host countries to do better, to aspire to the ideals of the Olympic Charter, 
if that's the bar, then they have not been successful. And I think we like to believe that the Olympics, you know, does have that sort of liberalizing effect when the entire world is coming to your doorstep for two weeks. The host wants to do the best they can to not just put on a good show, but embody the spirit and the ideals of the Olympics. And that is the liberalizing effect. And if the IOC, if other countries, if corporate sponsors, if everybody else joins in that project, then I think you have a chance of, of trying to do that. But when the IOC doesn't want to play that role, corporate sponsors don't want to play that role. And on the contrary, they're all in bed together just to make sure the games go well, then it's a losing battle. If I were to, to play devil's advocate for the IOC, and I'm, I'm definitely more sympathetic to your, your argument on this, I could imagine them saying it's important that the Olympics are an event where everyone around the world and not just countries that like each other compete. And so if you got too strict about human rights and you had human rights violators dropping out and starting their own sort of competitions, you could see a kind of schism and the initial point of the Olympics to unite these countries and have them compete in one place would be violated. Is that an actual risk or, or what would taking human rights seriously actually achieve or change about the Olympics? So I don't think the answer is to say the IOC should basically say, if you're not a democracy, you can't host the Olympics. I, sure. I don't think that's what the IOC should do. But I think it should be stronger in terms of what it expects of host countries in addressing at least some of the concerns stated by others in, in the run-up to the Games. I don't think that will create schisms. That is just a way for countries who want to host the Olympics to understand that hosting the Olympics is not just a business and public relations show. It's something that's much deeper, and they have to be willing to make that commitment if they want to host the Games. Again, nobody's saying, like, and the military dictator has to stand up and say, okay, I'm willing to throw off my uniform and be a popular elected Democrat to host the Olympics. You know, that's totally unrealistic. But for the IOC and corporate sponsors and others involved to be able to raise the expectations of what these hosts need to do as part of preparing for the Olympics. And it could be about climate change. It could be about the way they treat women and girls, education. It could be any number of things. I think that's the responsibility of the IOC. The Olympics is the crown jewel. The, 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 the rings, the five rings of the Olympics is the most recognized symbol around the world, right? So there, it has huge value because it carries so much weight. That weight can be used to do good, not just to put on a show. Absolutely. Victor Cha, thank you so much for doing this. Okay, thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. That's all for us today. Thank you so much again to Victor, and thank you all for listening. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor, Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts, and I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. If you haven't already, be sure to sign up for the Weeds newsletter so you can get more analysis from Dara Lind in your inbox. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter. We will be back in your feeds this Tuesday with another panel discussion with Vox correspondent Andrew Prokop. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.